The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Tiffany Joseph. Tiffany is a lot of interesting things. She's an astrologer, a multimedia artist, and a student of linguistics and indigenous languages. Just for some context relevant to the following conversation, I met Tiffany at a workshop called Where Are Your Keys? Where Are Your Keys is a comprehensive method for revitalizing endangered languages and skills. It uses games, tricks, and sign language to essentially hack second language learning. It was developed by an American fellow named Evan Gardner as a response to the imminent crisis of language loss that so many indigenous communities across North America are facing as elders and conversant speakers die and forget and culture slips away. I wanted to talk to Tiffany about why saving endangered language is so important and what settlers can do to help. It ended up being a very therapeutic conversation for me. I don't know how it was for Tiffany, but I am. And um, yeah, I I am a huge fan of Tiffany now. I I immediately, I I sort of got her vibe in the class and thought, I want to know her better and was so excited when she said yes to be on the show. I'm very grateful for her generosity and humbled by the wisdom that she shared with me and now with you. So Tiffany, can you introduce yourself? Tiffany Joseph Thunasnet Jusalitsin Hussetnich e Adlis Kopish. Halisin at Jasal Ilalungs, um Chakusin the Tha gender determiner. Um so I just said my name is Tiffany Joseph. I am Sanich and Squamish. Sanich and Squamish are the anglicized ways of, of saying Sanich and Squamish. Um, <coughs> I use the female gender determiner or the feminine gender determiner in Sanjathan and Squamish Snechim. So both those languages have that in common. Um, for our languages, I can say that for both of these languages, we have feminine and non-feminine um, gender determiners. Okay, so you could, with the non-feminine, is there like a non-masculine, or it's just there's something in between? Masculine, feminine, non-ether. It, it's Doesn't feminine kind of and non-feminine. Oh, so, okay. Um, say there was somebody who identifies as a man. It could be a cis male, could be a transgendered male. Um, I could use, so I would use the, mm-hmm. and that's the fem- feminine. Um, uh, a cis male or a transgendered male or the table or the chair, I could refer to all of those beings as ta. Oh, okay. Does that say something about the cosmology of Senchathan, or am I just reading that in? <laughs> like, is there something about centering the female in that, or um, in my that? in my experience, it would be. 
um, the way I kind of describe it, and this is something that I think becoming fluent um, would really be able to help somebody understand it. Mm. Um, so growing up, I learned to speak Skolmish, Snechu, uh, and that was through school. And I grew up in my Skolmish community um, of Homolchstin, which is Capilano Reserve mm. in West Vancouver. And doesn't really matter where you go really in Coast Salish territory, there will always be a speaker who will speak in the local language and they'll translate and they'll be like, there's, you can't always translate mm. um, certain things. And for me as a child, I wasn't satisfied with that. So when I was younger, if you asked me, what does this, these gender determiners mean? A younger me would have said, the feminine is more important. Um, because I was growing up in a world where, in this world, the English-speaking world, the masculine is considered more important, more a desirable traits to carry. Mm. And um, the way this was, I was receiving this information that about feminine, about woman, um, was that we held a woman up more higher um, than everything else. Mm. Not just masculine, everything else. Mm. Right? It's not masculine and feminine, there's feminine and everything else. Okay, and what's different today then between <laughs> Tiffany today and, mm. and Tiffany of how you understood that in the past? Well... Our elders always also say that everything's, everybody and everything is equal. So that's why when I was talking about a cis male, a transgendered male, a table and a chair, I'm talking, I said, all these beings. Mm -hmm. I'm not seeing a chair and a table as not non-living, that they don't have life. Mm-hmm. So the way I see it now is that everything has energy. So you and I have energy. Other people in the room will also have energy if they were in here. And the tables and chairs have energy. Mm. So the feminine energy is just something that's different than the rest of the energy. Oh my, I feel like I'm going to have to have you back on for a whole other thing about that. Because that's very captivating for me. The way I'd like to come back around to that first is to come back to you and where you live today. So you grew up in what I would know as West Vancouver. Um, where do you live now? Um, which is um, our way, uh, our name for our territory, for our, that village. Um, it's anglicized into Tsartlup, mm-hmm. First Nation, um, or and then under like an Indian Act, it would be Tsartlup Reserve, mm-hmm. um, and that is Hosatnich uh, Village. So today there is the Tsartlup First Nation, Tsayot First Nation, Aquachin First Nation, and Tsaikum First Nation. Those are all under the Indian Act four different Indian bands, but 
from our perspective, they're all Huseitnich Eitlilungs, Huseitnich uh, villages. Mm. So people have different reasons why they chose to register um, as their own quote-unquote First Nations. That's what we call them now, mm. is like Sartlop First Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, when they did it, it was the Indian bands, right? Right. So people have their own different reasons um, for, quote, basically registering themselves as different nations, but when we start, quote-unquote, decolonizing or, quote-unquote, indigenizing, we kind of start to see, oh, we're all the same nation. Mm. And for learning language, you can kind of see, like, we're all one nation, and it can kind of make sense also why you can tell they're different. Hmm. Um, learning from a fluent Sanchathan uh, speaker in Huchathasp is going to say something dif- say something differently than somebody in Tseot. Hmm. And even this family is going to say something slightly different. Um, our language just, I guess what you could say, like a vernacular each family has like their own vernacular. Mm-hmm. Each community has their own vernacular. And the Huseitnish nation, you know, we all have one language, Sinchathan. Mm-hmm. But there's just different things. We say things really differently. And there's key things where if you're in Huchasasp, if you're in West Saanich, that's another way, West Saanich, you can tell the difference between somebody from West Saanich and East Saanich. Mm-hmm. So that existed prior to contact, that exists today. Mm-hmm. And it existed in our own indigenous language, and it, it exists in the way speak, people speak English. Mm, right. And so what's really fascinating for people who are not from here, because most of my listeners, well, I shouldn't say most, but you know, of the 10,000 listeners in a month, probably six to 8,000 are from the U.S. or Europe or different places. So here, let's give them some context. Like, some of these villages are literally a five-minute drive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and mm-hmm. they have quite um, unique or distinct ways of being. Mm-hmm. Um, so you brought up with language, and you and I met at a language... I guess you could call it a revitalization workshop, but it's a language, learning how to speak a second language and teach it. Um, and the process is called Where Are Your Keys? Which I have to say is changing my life. It sounds like it did yours as well because you've known about it for quite a while and now you have um, other teachers uh, who are in an immersion program in Sanchothan, the Sanchothan language. So here I am as a settler, total interloper. I'm just kind of showing up, trying to learn Lekwungen, which is a different nation, but everybody's working together to revitalize indigenous languages. Mm-hmm. And so in class, we have a technique called mumble, where you know when you're nervous about trying to pronounce a word the first time, um, you just mumble anyway. And the little tagline that goes with it is close enough is good enough for now until I can get an accent adjustment. So we all just kind of mumble along, saying the word kind of badly until we feel confident enough and then somebody will adjust. And as a settler, that's kind of how I feel like I am and where I'm at with like reconciliation 
is like, I don't, I don't know how to do this, but I'm just kind of mumbling along until somebody comes and corrects my accent and tells me, actually, this is how we would do things. So I'm very curious about your thoughts on how, because like most of the people listening to this show are what I call the well-intentioned white ladies, and we're working or, you know, curious about the spiritual space and how we integrate our spiritual lives into the everyday. And so if I'm a settler and I'm like, I really want to support the revitalization of First Nations languages, indigenous languages in BC, what do you think, what are your thoughts on the role? Like if you were going to adjust my accent as to how I'm trying to support, um, what would you say? And the one thing I want to say also is like, I totally recognize that this isn't a blanket thing. Like I've, I've you know, I think I've heard, don't quote me on this, but there's something like 60 indigenous languages just in my province of Canada, our province of British Columbia in BC, which is like more than Europe. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that counts dialects, Mm -hmm. but so I recognize that like quote unquote indigenous language is Mm -hmm. pretty vague. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would just love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, Canada speaks to the amount of languages within BC. Um, the reason that exists is because we had rich cultures, mm. right? So when cultures get diluted, um, so like English, there's standardized English that people speak in Canada and America and England. Um, England, mm. <laughs> but in terms of like we, we lose a lot when there's a lack of diversity. Mm. We lose a lot of nuance or we just lose a lot of depth, I guess, is really what's going on. So the way I see it in Satanich, it's like an appreciation for diversity, um, not a fear of diversity. Mm. Um, I feel like that's natural in our culture and probably natural for a lot of cultures, but um, we just tend to hear the voices that are like, we need to stop this, we need to change this, or that's not right. So like English, an example, is like, basically a lot of like African-American vernacular English Mm -hmm. um, gets kind of, you could say appropriated mm-hmm. by a mainstream by the mainstream culture, mm-hmm. and people will criticize it mm. and say that's improper English. Improper English, English. got it. Right. Okay. So um, those kind of mentalities um, are basically an attempt to make everything and everyone the same, mm-hmm. and to create a hierarchy of language. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas when diversity is allowed to, like, exist and for us not to be afraid and not um, classify, like, stratify, I guess Mm -hmm. would be the word, stratify language use into, like, that's inferior, rather see things differently. So, like, when I was talking about, um, like, when I introduce myself, I can say I'm I'm from Startlip. I can say I'm from Wuchatlip, or sorry, I live in Sartlip, or I live in Wuchatlip, or I can say I live in West Saanich, or I can say I live in Brentwood Bay. Mm. 
And the reason why I was kind of talking about, like, um, the, like I was saying that for a period of time. Because I want to say because I want to be like, I know my language, I know where I come from, and I know the, the name of this place. Mm. Um, I would say Sartlip because there are people who, depending on their people that they interact with, <laughs> right. know Sartlip. Right. And I say West Sandwich because there's people in another part of community who are like, if I said I'm from Sartlip, they'd be like, what? Mm. Like, I don't know where that is. And if I say West Anish, oh, okay. Right. Um, I get where that is. Usually that's kind of more people who are involved with, like, the big house culture because they talk about the West Anish big house and the, well, no, no longer, but the East Anish big house and knowing that's how they situate it. Mm. And then Brentwood Bay, because, like, if you want to look me up on Google Maps and how to find me, I'm from Brentwood Bay. Mm. And you go down Latesse, the very end. Right. Like, that's my house. <laughs> right, right. Don't pay attention to the road number, the house numbers, because they're not in the right order. <laughs> right. 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 You're, like, really, you have to have the sense of the place. Yeah. And so you're giving them that. And I think even that speaks to to the diversity that exists within Hussainich today, um, the rich culture that exists here, because there are four different ways that I can tell you where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, the way you said it was very elegant. You said, I know the name of this place mm-hmm. in this language and in this way and this way. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the meaning behind the name of the place where you come from. Uh, so when I grew up and for many, many years, um, I was told that, so going back, I knew as Sartlip. Before that, I knew it as West Saanich. Mm-hmm. Um, so grew up going to West Saanich to stay with my aunt got a little older, Sartlip First Nation is where this, I actually moved there actually to stay and live with, with another aunt, up the hill from the other aunt. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sartlip First Nation was kind of like, almost like a brand of the nation. And um, I understood this place to be known as the place of Maple trees, or the village of maple trees. Oh, okay. That's really cool. Um, I'm aware that each village has different things related to the plants that um, might grow there or how it looks from the water. Usually that's mm. how places are described, how it looks from the water. Mm. But coming into the Chathanese language revitalization program and getting to learn from my cousin who has done mentoring with elders for many years. Um, um, he told me that there's some people who say that um, Sartlip is the place of maples, but there's other peoples who have, who have spoken to it being the, basically the keeper of the rope. And the keeper of the rope refers to our, um, our story of the flood so our Hussainish territory um, was covered in water, and at that time, Sleungoch, 
mountain is the place where we tied our canoes up to in our Buddhist tree. So Chachlasp is said to be the place that that rope was kept. Mm. Um, and there's been a lot of people, Satanic people, who have talked about that story um, with like elementary schools and middle schools and you know, taking kids up there, local kids, to like go for walks there. And um, a lot of people, like kids will ask questions like, where is the rope now? How big was the rope? <laughs> Um, and I think there's a lot of rich information there within the Satanist community. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the school that your kids go to? It seems pretty special. Um, well, my oldest son goes to um, a local elementary school within the school district. Um, my daughter is in daycare, so she's not school yet, but my, um, my younger son... Um, he goes to the Sanchothan Lenonga School Out, which is a, an immersion school um, where there's goes from Kwamloch, which is root, is our word for root, which is our preschool, up to uh, oh, I don't actually um, up to grade three. Mm. So there is the Kwamluk, the root, Kaluk, which is the bud, and that's kindergarten, and then Nets Eith and Chess Eith, for which kind of speak to like branches, I guess, of mm. a plant. So we're trying to grow our school out to our school, our immersion school, into a full, like, grand vision. You can learn Sinchothan, well, you can go to school in Sinchothan from preschool to university. Wow. Fantastic. And so, again, the, the language is really reflecting the culture, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of situating itself in the land. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, like you said, you know, a lot of our village names are described as you see them from the water because, of course, it's a peninsula. Um, so that's a huge factor, and especially if you're people who travel by canoe and that kind of thing, that's important. So... Can you talk a little bit about how today we could think about we as like all of us, um, native and non-native, think about um, what the land might have to teach us mm-hmm. about how to be together? Mm-hmm. Well, kind of doing like opposites. Um, Satanist territory and a lot of Coast Salish territory. Um, we're all wetlands. So we're all familiar with the idea that the Amazon is a rainforest that is rich with a lot of plant medicine. I've heard the saying, like, if you get bit by something in the Amazon, stay where you are, the medicine mm-hmm. is close by. Mm-hmm. And I assume that the same could have been said for Coast Salish territory, because it was a rainforest. Um, When settlers came here, there was ancient cedars that were, could fill this room in terms of their trunk size. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we talk about like how we traveled by canoe and the water was our highways, 
like think of the actual highways actually being water at some point because a lot of our territories were drained. Mm. Um, if you go to like look at Stelly's High School, which is on um, Stelly's Cross Road, um, that was a cranberry bog. Mm. And we basically can't have a cranberry bog here anymore. We can't find like the the seed of a cranberry that and propagate it and grow it there. It wouldn't be a Satanish cranberry mm. um, because it's gone. It got drained. Um, and even then, the land itself has a lot of like cow fecal matter and. Mm. People probably use like fertilizers, like chemicals and stuff. Like there would be a lot of healing that has to happen to the land before a lot of things would be edible Mm -hmm. um, to a certain um, I can't think of anything but desirability. Mm -hmm. Um, And what was your question again? Well, what might the land, how might we be on the land differently? Mm-hmm. And what might it teach us about how we could be together differently? Mm-hmm. So, a lot of the times, people ask um, Indigenous peoples in their own territories, um, how can I be a good ally? Mm-hmm. And um, what I was saying the other day is that... Um, and it kind of relates to learning language. Um, we expect that there's got to be, there has to be somebody who can tell me the answer. How can I treat you well, basically, is what you're asking me. Mm-hmm. How can, you're asking me, how can I treat you well? Mm-hmm. Um, talking about the language, the idea, like an English mind, the English language teaches you there's, there's an inferior way to act and there's a superior way to act. And um, in an English mind, I am inferior to you. Mm. The law states that, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has for at least 150 <laughs> years um, that it's been written down. Right. In terms of how people have acted, they've also acted that way. Mm. And so even before it was written down. Right. So... Um, it is something every basically English-speaking person has to like shed, like get out of the English-speaking mind. Mm-hmm. So when you're immersing yourself in a language, you do have to take yourself out of the English-speaking mind. And that's what this game teaches you to do as well. Like, where just, are your keys? Yeah, where mm-hmm. are your keys? Um, we're not going to translate anything. So if you need to learn from the land, I can't translate anything for you. Mm-hmm. If I want to learn from the land... My elders aren't translating anything for me. In an ideal world, I would have been raised on this land with a relationship to the land. And even I have those questions, you know. Mm. What, for you, it's like, how do you not infringe upon me? For me, it's how do I not infringe upon my elder? Mm. How do I not infringe upon my neighbor? Mm. How do I respect them? And even I have to make this relationship with the land. The land I'm on, like where my house is, 
There's the beach down the road. Um, there's a creek in my backyard. Um, and it's actually building that relationship. And that's where the teachings really do come from. Our elders have said that all the time. They've never stopped saying that. This language is from the land. And the teachings come from the land. The way to be on the land on the land, and how to treat each other come from the land. Mm. There's um, stories about our creator or creators. And in Sinjothan, in Hussainich, we call the creator um, Chels. So Chels, there's stories of him throughout Coast Salish territory turning people or animals into stone. It might just, might not just be one stone, it could be a whole mountain, or it could be a part of a mountain. There's people have stories where the, the waterfall is somebody's tears. Mm. Um, so our stories, our mythology, our history has, it's literally Chael's turned that into stone mm-hmm. to teach us a lesson. Mm-hmm. But there's also kind of, again, thinking like, it's not, those aren't just sisters in that mountain that are teaching you. It's the pebbles, right? Those are beings too. Um, The pieces that fall off the mountain, what are they teaching you? Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's a hard thing to do. Yeah, my English mind wants to say the answers are written in the stone, mm-hmm. which of course is such an English thing to do, which is be like, I have stamped it with language and written it down. And so it's hard to get out of my English metaphors. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get out of mm-hmm. even, even saying our teachings. It's like, it's hard to get out of the possessiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you say that, uh, would you say that learning indigenous language is is an aspect of decolonization or would you say that it's like that's a first nations thing and settlers should kind of back off of it mm-hmm. um with my experience of where your keys with my experience of Sanchothanist which is a a university program with my experience of um, observing my, or listening to my grandmother um, on my Skolmish side and her history of growing up in our Skolmish territory. Um, When people started settling, um, there were people who were white people, probably like Chinese as well, who owned businesses and spoke Skolmish. It's natural that if me and my community are fluent, then we're going to speak our language. And if somebody wants to do business with us, they're going to need to speak the language to be able to talk to us. Um, I think that the reason people don't want quote-unquote outsiders to learn the language is because there's a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who come in, take, and don't come back. Um, basically treat our language like it's a hobby. Mm. Like it's 
a thing that can be studied, that can... That be archived at the university. <laughs> that gives that person some sort of credibility, mm. something to put on their resume. Mm. Like, I wrote this research grant application, I received it, I studied this, and now I know these things. Like, I know these things. So I spoke about yesterday, and I've spoken about this a lot, that the reason why I dropped the program is because that in a colonial institution is what is encouraged, what is expected. Mm. And there's a lot of decolonization that's happening within universities. And whatever's going on, some things might be quote-unquote good or bad, whatever's going on, that's not my deal. Right. Right? So what my deal is, is that I want to learn the language my proof is not in receiving a research grant, writing a paper, uh, doing the research, writing a paper, saying this is what I learned. Mm-hmm. My proof is in I learned the language, I spoke it. Even that is not the next step. I learned the language, I am teaching it to other people around me, whether it's other adult learners or my own children, my spouse, um, people in the community. Because when I look, when I've taken a step back and looked at these university things, I don't want to say that these things have have not mattered because there's a lot that's been happening for Indigenous language revitalization since the 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. 80s, 90s, 2000s. Mm-hmm. It's really kind of the past 10 years or so that things really just, like, more exploded, mm-hmm. where it's like, we need to do immersion, we need to do this, we need to do that, and we need to get people fluent. Um, and... It's like, we need to speak, we need to stop writing, we need to, that kind of thing. And um, so I don't want to say that those decades of work where there was a few people speckled here and there who were doing the work, because I know that from growing up in my own community, that there are people who have been doing work who aren't getting so fluent, per se, who are getting a lot of words who were getting a lot of teachings, perhaps in English. Mm. That's why I, I never liked that saying, like, you can't translate it. I'm like, well, I'm going to try mm. because all I have is English. Mm. You can't, like, you can't tell me I don't understand because I want to understand and that wanting to understand matters and me elevating the way I think is how I'm going to understand in the language that I have. Right. So, because if I had just let, oh, I'm never going to understand. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that actually probably impacts people. Like, I'm never going to understand. They said I'm never going to understand. They said you'll never be able to translate that. So I guess I better not even care about my language and my culture because I'm never going to understand. Mm-hmm. Because that's a message that people are, and our elders really try not to, you know, like, it's that's the thing is when you when you speak in English it's like there's limits 
you can and you can't. It's so true, right? And there's no, it's, it doesn't invite for openness, like, for now. <laughs> right. Later, you can understand. Yeah. Or you can't understand by speaking, you can understand by experiencing this. Right. This, and that's the thing that's kind of been missing for a lot of years, is, like, an invitation of, like, this is the space mm. where you can understand. It's so interesting even how you describe uh, the limitation being as understanding because uh, growing up, I was in French immersion. You know, Canada's a bilingual country and the quote-unquote, right? <laughs> that's, the, that's the official documentation that says that we are. And so here I am on the West Coast my entire life, you know, Couch and Valley. And, uh, the, but the, the reason was uh, bilingualism gave you the opportunity to have a federal job, right? Like it was, for, for, for me growing up, that was a thing. So nobody even talked really about understanding. It was fluency for job prospects. That, that's kind of the, you can just see how the settler hierarchy affects even the, the concept of what would be successful within language learning. So when you're like, oh, yeah, I'd never understand, my thought was, didn't anybody ever say, what's the point? You'll never get a job. Do you know what I mean? Like, you'll never get a job with St. Chalton. You know, mm-hmm. they wouldn't, it's like, it's just such a different cultural understanding of why you would be learning it, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, okay, so I... I didn't quite answer oh, your question. Oh, I'm sorry. Though. Yes, yeah, I did. Yeah, tell me. Yeah, sorry about that. So it, it is something that English-speaking, Hussainich, English-speaking Indigenous peoples in our own territories are having to do as well. Um, but there's a different, like, our experience of the world is um, one of being oppressed and so that we have to shed that ourselves and find find ourselves mm-hmm. and um, for those who are visitors in our territories um, and this, so this is to be clear other indigenous people as well right yeah that um shedding the ego, basically, of an English-speaking mind and um, really finding who you are on the inside. No matter who you are, that's what we're all doing. Mm -hmm. So for me, I do have teachings from my elders that I've received from going to community gatherings. And I've really took it upon myself like just in my mind that just in my mind emphasizing that to understand what they were trying to teach us Mm -hmm. Um, I want to be able to understand what they're saying because they're saying they're telling me that there's something that they can't say in English Mm -hmm. I want to understand that and do my best to be able to say that to an English-speaking person. Mm. And first, it's connecting basically with your heart. Mm. 
So for Skhotmish, Khoseitnich, and other Coast Salish peoples, um, we have a word in Skhotmish, we say uh, Skwalwan. Skwalwan. And in Khoseitnich, we say, or in Sanchathan, we say um, Shkweliquins. Shkweliquins. Mm-hmm. So Shkweliquins speaks to Kwel means to speak. That's the root of, that's in that word. Aquins, the suffix, speaks to, like, my inside. Mm. And then the sh, um, I can't quite break down sh, but my inner voice, okay. basically. But for us, we simply say, without going into that basically linguistic breakdown, um, is that it's our thoughts and feelings and for us, the concept of thoughts and feelings are not separate. They are the same. Mm. So if I'm talking about my feelings or if I'm talking about my thoughts, if I'm saying that in Sanchathan, I am, they're this one and the same. Mm. I don't have separate words for those things. So finding your Aishkweliquins, that's something that's always said in the big house, on tribal journeys, um, when we do a workshop, an elder or somebody from the community will usually talk about Aishkweliquins. Like, I came here with my Aishkweliquins, or I hope we all have Aishkweliquins today. Mm-hmm. So, I can't really teach you how to treat me well. Mm. You have to know how to treat yourself well. And if you can't do that, you can't treat me well. And that's what happened with colonization. These people didn't know how to treat themselves well. Nobody taught them how to treat themselves well. And they came here and said, we're not going to treat you well either. Because why would we treat you well? We don't know how. So decolonization and indigenization is our first rule that I was taught by my Sanchathan teacher is our first rule is to be kind. And for me, in my English-speaking mind, the child that I was who couldn't have that, who didn't receive that teaching, well, I was in Skhotmash, first of all, and I heard these concepts talked about in our gatherings. There's certain things you can't teach. But growing up in Skhotmash and being taught about hot squallowing basically was told that but not in a very succinct thing where our first rule is to be kind I figured out how can I feel good doing what I'm doing Um, but also thinking about how my parents raised me and the teachings that um, come around grief. This is going to ask your answer your closing question. So I grew up. Most of the gatherings that I went to were funerals, and these teachings I received were usually Shaker Church speakers, mm-hmm. um, and there was a lot of talk about fear of our lo- losing our language. But also, I received teachings from my Squamish language teacher, 
who is a very, very kind woman. So I didn't have somebody to tell me our first rule is to be kind. I had somebody showing me that. Mm. Um, and, but she wasn't really teaching it to me, right? Mm -hmm. So I had to grow up a little bit older. Like, I don't feel good about myself. Who makes me feel good? What do they do? Who makes other people feel good? And there's people who go through the hardest things in their lives and they just want to fall apart. Who do most people feel really comfortable around? Most of us hate our moms. <laughs> but grandma hmm. is the safe place. Grandma's that warm place. Grandma, if she says something that's kind of harsh, it's like, well, that, that's grandma. <laughs> I can forgive grandma. Yeah. Grandma gives me candy or grandma gives me mint. My grandma gave me mints all the time. <laughs> Those white round ones. Yeah. Scotch mints. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> and she didn't necessarily teach me a lot, but she, I was like, I know that today, if she was still alive, that if I needed somebody to love me, <laughs> It'd be my grandma. If I needed somebody to be like, Grandma, I went bankrupt, um, husband cheated on me, I lost my job, um, I cheated with, uh, I had an affair with somebody else's husband or wife, <sighs> significant other. Um, I'm a terrible person. I really fucked up. Grandma's going to say, I still love you. How do I become that person before I'm 60? Right? And that requires a lot of looking inside. How am I judging? How am I creating hierarchies? And I, I can't teach you that. And I can't necessarily teach other people that other than being like a grandma and saying... You did your best. Um, and I can learn from my grandma and that perhaps she didn't set strong enough boundaries because I think that could be said for a lot of people's grandmas. Mm. Other people might have grandmas who set too harsh of boundaries. Mm. It's another story, but, you know, I, could, I learned that setting boundaries is important so how am I going to set that boundary, though? Do I criticize somebody? Well, my grandma didn't quite do that. And my language teachers don't... All of them have said, when I made a mistake learning my language, either what would happen is... So if I said... Um, and... I asked an elder, they'd probably laugh at me right away. Who's somebody who spoke Skolmish, they would laugh at me and I'd be like, what did I say? And then like, that's a moment where they would correct and be like, you just said you pulled down your pants. <laughs> but I get you were trying to say you're happy. <laughs> right. Right. So teaching through 
the innocence of laughing at somebody saying something funny, mm-hmm. but correcting in that moment, like, you don't want to say that again. <laughs> you're going to be telling people you're pulling down your pants. Mm-hmm. It was funny, and I'll teach you, also teach you how to say I'm happy. Mm-hmm. But chinsato. Um, but if I'm mumbling through the language and I'm kind of saying it wrong, but they understand me, they'll say, yeah, I get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You have to learn how to say but would you say it that way? And that's how they would apply the correction, the mm-hmm. accent adjustment. Well, this is how I would say it. Mm-hmm. I get what you're saying, but this is how I would say it. And that's something a lot of language learners of Sachathan and Sokhotmish, how they learned the language. There wasn't this harsh discipline of, like, you said that wrong, the la goes after the sin, not before. Right. Because you're saying saying it wrong. Mm -hmm. In English, if if you write it something and the grammar is incorrect, you will get corrected, you will get graded, you will be given a letter, a number percentage of how accurate you were. And we in our English-speaking minds, are expecting that mm-hmm. when we go into learning other languages, when we're learning anything new. Like, how successful am I? We don't... Are, we do feel really uncomfortable when there's... Like, that's not how we do things. Mm-hmm. And we have to shed that away. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we had this way of proving we were successful, but that mark on a paper, really out, out in the real world, how successful is it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, going back to, I did research on this, and I can talk about this, this particle of a word for 50 <laughs> pages. Right. And I can talk to it about with my professor, I could talk about it with my supervisor, and I could talk about it with these people here in the university. No one outside of here ever needs to know. I have a job. I have a community. I have... Do I have a community, though? Yeah. You know, it's... <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. So, I had... That's what... Learning language, learning how to get in touch with yourself... If I can connect with me, I can connect with other people. And if I can respect myself, I can respect other people. And if I disrespect them, I can take a criticism because English-speaking language, criticisms hurt. Right. In a lot of indigenous languages, when elders spoke, they spoke very honestly and to the point. That's what I've heard. And... The idea of asking for stuff is kind of strange. Mm. Um, it's something you kind of have to think of as a learner. Like, do we ask or do we tell? And why do we ask and why do we tell? Mm. Who can I ask and who can I tell? Mm. So in English, this might be easier to understand. Like, I could tell my husband, um, go to the store and get me salt. And expect that, depending, see different relationships, different <laughs> marriages, right. like, there could be a husband who will say, I'm not going to, this, 
like, why? Why do you want me? Or there could be a husband who will just go and come back. No fuss, no muss. There could be a husband who wants to know why. There could be a husband who waits around, doesn't do it that day. You know? So who, when can you just be direct until the point? Mm. Or when do you have to ask? Like, can you go mm. and get the salt for me? But English, that's why it's... That, that's why there's a struggle there, is because it can be so critical where if um, the relationship for my husband with the feminine energy, fe- females, um, is that when he's told that way, that it's, he's being um, ordered around and um, basically not respected because he's a man in the English-speaking mind. I see. He's, he's got a, a, a superiority somewhere. Mm-hmm. He's got, he's trained that he's allowed to annoy women or girls. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't have to meet her needs. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and that's just an example of like a husband and wife doesn't have to be specifically that. Right. Right. But I like what you were saying earlier though about the correction. Like, mm-hmm. I understand what you're saying. This is how I would say it. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that as like another way of even answering the question how can we be together? Mm-hmm. You know, that it's like, okay, I, I hear you asking me that question. Here's how I would ask that question. It's kind of how I'm interpreting what you've said to me. It's like, you know, you would, yeah. Here's how I would ask that question. What what can I do to understand? How can I? What are the tools that are actually just right around me? The the land, the water, the mountain. You know, you said to me yesterday. As soon as you connect with the land, you'll know our struggle. If you connect with the water, you connect with the earth um, and it feels like there's something very um, hopeful or soothing in that for me that said what I find is when I connect with the land I touch upon an abyss of grief and then rage <laughs> that takes me out so um, yeah just to close this up could you talk you know just like specifically grief and rage like mm-hmm. you must hit an upper limit mm-hmm. with the bullshit right mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what do you what do you do mm-hmm. um i think i would say that while i was a child a young person um i definitely had a lot of grief and rage mm-hmm. um when i was five years old i was suicidal mm-hmm. um throughout my teens up until I was about 17 um I struggled I had depression but no one really said anything about it um I had insomnia um through many years um I remember when I was a kid well first off in preschool I didn't want to go to school kids are mean and scary I don't want to be around them there's no one to like adult 
them. <laughs> That's scary. Right. Or there is, but only for certain periods of time. You know, school, school was kind of scary to me. Kindergarten, I was like, for some reason, something happened between, like, end of preschool and kindergarten. My first day of kindergarten, I was like, okay, mom drops me off here. Maybe I liked it that my mom actually brought me there because preschool I had to get on a bus. Mm. Kindergarten, my mom dropped me off. I was like, okay, you're going to come back. I had no fear. But I remember there was other kids crying. And I was like, mom, (laughs) how come that kid's crying? And I was like, are they sad? Are they scared? Like, do they think somebody's going to hurt them? And she's like, well, they might think that their mom is just leaving them. They might not like that their mom's just leaving them. But they know they got, they're coming back, right? And she's like, my mom didn't quite answer. And I was just like, you're coming back, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> she's like, and I kind of like, I feel like she just kind of started ignoring me. So I was just like, ah, oh, fuck. She's going to come back. I know she's going to come back. Like, I've had experience with that though, right? This kid might not have had experience with that. Right. So... And my mom even said that she maybe this she's never been to daycare or preschool like you have before. And preschool wasn't really the experience that I think gave me comfort. Was, I think it was probably prior to this point. My mom had dropped me off at, with my grandparents mm. and would always come back. So I, I that was just something my brain had proved. Mm-hmm. But school completely. Um, I knew that I could get successful by learning how to spell and learning how to do math. And I found comfort in those things. The social stuff was a bit scary, I think, for me. And um, it was because of feeling like my I can't speak my language here. Mm. I can only speak it in this place. And also, while I'm learning my language, I seem to be the only one who... I seem to pick it up faster than everyone else. And I see that my peers are not quote-unquote successful. Mm. But I'm also hearing that there's other ways of learning. There's all, I'm hearing that there's other, basically, intelligences. Mm. I clearly have mine. I don't see theirs because this English world doesn't show me how there's, these mm. people are successful. Q age of 20, like, those people have, like, their jobs and stuff like that. Those people were actually happier than I was, even though they weren't successful, quote-unquote, in school, like, academically, like, their literacy. Like, my literacy, when I got tested in grade... Because here's the thing with First Nations students is that they test you every year for how successful you are in your academics to see so they can be like why aren't first nation students why aren't first nation students successful in academics you're getting literacy tests like um you're getting if you're a first nation student you get like different testing yeah they will literally pull you out of a class and say all the first nation students come and write this test seriously essentially yeah that happened wow throughout my education wow and I got to see the results of that, actually, when I became an adult learner because my school records got sent to the adult school that I was learning in. I was like, oh, I remember when I did that test and I tested at a university level. Mm. And I'm like, by what these people are telling me, why they're testing us, I'm the only one who's doing that. Mm. So I felt very different than 
everyone, not just like my own like Scottish people. I felt different from them, but I also felt different from everyone else. Mm. And there's, I'm like, why? Mm. It's very sad, very hard. Mm-hmm. And also seeing that there's a lot of violence out in the world towards women like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and also hearing things like people really need to be connected to the land. If they were connected to the land, they wouldn't abuse it and then feeling like no one ever will be. So this is all from an English mind though, mm. right? When you learn from, when I've learned from my elders I've, and I've learned from in our language, and done this dissecting of like what does Aishkwelequins mean? What does in me t- getting in touch with myself is that we're too much in, in our thoughts, first of all. Mm. And so that's where a lot of grief comes from. Mm. There's also there is stuff on the land that is pain. People did come down, come and cut down cedar trees just to hurt us. Literally, they did these things to hurt us intentionally. Mm-hmm. And um, so dealing with grief and rage and the level it came from is, for me, what helped me is realizing 400 years ago, 300 years ago, 200 years ago, 100 years ago, even today, people are coming here because they're coming from places that hate children. This is a world of hated children. What I can do is stop hating my inner child, stop and start loving my inner child, loving other people's children because you're a child. I can't continue that cycle that colonization has implanted, has inflicted on my mother, my grandmother, through residential school, through my grandmother being the first Indian in a white school, her being that person who was different than everyone else. She was the only one who graduated. So she had eight other students, Indian students in that white school that entered at the same time. She was the only one who graduated. She was different. My mother was somebody who they're like, you're a, you're a gifted student. You could, you can, you can be in these gifted classes, or you can be in same thing happened to me at grade four. You could, you're a gifted student. You can be in the gifted class, or you can be in the normal. And we have this parent ability through my mother's mother to be able to hook into that academic way of thinking and um, I needed to be able to hook into the spirituality and I think my I would say my grandmother and mother have but it's in a way that wasn't where they taught it to me verbally Mm. I had to examine their lives and say young me how could this happen to my mother? How could this happen to my grandmother? How could we tolerate this when we were a nation of people who revered women and the feminine? 
I come back to, well, that's just what I have to start doing. I have to love children and respect children and create that environment and think from a Sanchathan speaking, Sholtmish speaking worldview where the world is abundant. So Lekwangin. I think it's Lekwangin means or it might be the place of, like I know one of the villages and it's not just Sanghis but in other parts in other languages around the coast there'd be a place that smells like fish smells like rotting fish mm. that actually means that place is pretty abundant because they have mm. so much fish that they clean so much fish yeah. there's fish rotting there like mm-hmm. the guts and stuff yeah it's because we were connected to the land and connected to how it could be abundant. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it comes out through ceremonies. We have a salmon ceremony. It's stop thinking there's not enough because that's the colonial mindset. There's not enough. Because there's not enough, I need to take from other people. Even with our language, Tlatlam means enough. Um, like, how do you feel if I say I feel slatlam? It's not a bad thing, cause like, if 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 you said something, say husetnich, husetnich, slatlams. So that's that's enough. And if I say that to you in English, you're like, if I'm like, oh, that's good enough. You're like, oh, like, <laughs> yeah, I really I failed at that. Yeah, right. But mm-hmm. it's a child in mind. It's like, oh, that's good. Like I understood you. Ah, oh, that's enough. Mm. That's enough for me to understand you. Right. Right? So the indigenous worldview of Coast Salish people, I won't say all, but the ones that I know, is that there is enough. There's always enough. I will... There's enough. And if it turns out I don't have enough, my neighbor has enough and is going to share with me. And that is how... I deal with grief is that I remember that that's an English colonial way of thinking of the world and it's a world of lack and a world that is afraid that I do have fear and I can love that fear and I can love that part of me that's this is all feeling pain I can love the pain because that's what my culture has also taught me through Everything I've observed with my, and when I say culture, like the ceremonies of funerals, of memorials, of the things we do every day related to the loss of somebody, of somebody. Um, And um, not seeing it as a bad thing, but also recognizing that's not something I want to experience every day. Mm. And that takes, you know, when I look at it, my eyes are closed. When I've looked at it through my whole life, that insomniacal young woman, that woman, young woman who was depressed, that young child who wanted to kill herself, why do I feel this way? Because I don't feel loved here right now. I'm five years old and I don't feel loved. 
but I had my what new age folks would say my higher self I had this conversation happening and you probably did too but you might not remember I remember I don't know why I remember of thinking when I was five years old and feeling suicidal mom loves me I know she does I know she would show me love if she knew how much I hurt but I can't let her know how much I hurt she can't handle that and that's obviously a problem a child shouldn't be thinking of their mother's well-being that's not the world we're supposed to be born into but it happens and that's just how it is and I have I basically have had this belief if my mom could do better she would have done better if my mom had the energy she would give it to me my mom had four children for the first well, my brother's five years younger than me. Mm. And when he was 12, she had her fifth child. Mm. But basically four children, and my brother had autism. Mm. She had to give him so much, she didn't have enough to give me. She was worried about him so much, she didn't have enough to give me. And I knew that. And that's why I had so much pain, though. Like, and I couldn't get it out. I shut down. That's how I dealt with it. It's like too much emotions. I shut down. And you're not making me safe. So I will rage and express it towards you. Or I'll have a cold rage where I will keep you at a distance. Don't you dare fucking hurt me because I will kill you, essentially, is the energy that I would put out there. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I have a lot of experience with grief and rage. But I was allowed to feel it. That's why... I am here today, I guess. You know, my parents didn't try to change me. They didn't say stop feeling that way. I consider that a blessing. Because when I feel those things, I don't feel so much guilt. I'm 31. Perhaps I am farther along in, in my journey in, in relation to grief and rage in that I was able to actually be in it for a long time mm. and not criticized for it mm. I might have experienced some neglect because of it because people know how to deal with it but it wasn't that you're doing something wrong it's like well if we could do something better we would do it for you but we don't know what to do so mm. we got our own things to deal with and for me that's what my life has been how can I love me enough to make because I wasn't before and how can I also create a space where when other folks are feeling that way, that they know I see them? And I think a lot of people would say that I, I have seen them and haven't judged them. So that's how I became the grandmother before I'm 60. And it's not always been, like, there's no, I don't have a degree for this, <laughs> you know? And there's... A handful of people, well, I think a lot of people would say that's bullshit, but there's people who have basically benefited from that. And even that, acknowledging that, was really hard for a long time. Um, so there's something that uh, I had to go, I have to go through and still going through, is that 
I've done enough. And I think that's kind of where I'm at. Like, I've done enough, um, and I'm doing enough, and I will continue to do enough, right? So, and not judging, like, that was bad or that was good. Because I think inside, I don't have a spiteful, natural spitefulness. If that comes out, it's because I'm scared. Mm. And it doesn't make me a good or a bad person. It's I'm a scared person. And that person needs love. Mm. Thank you for sharing this. Thank you for showing yourself to me. I feel honored to have you on the show. Thanks. I feel honored to be able to learn language with you, but also um, receive your teachings. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, Scott. I was there for that conversation, and I had a hard time keeping it together. And listening to it again, I still can't keep it together. So I'd like to invite back to the Numinous podcast my man, my partner, my sounding board, Ruben Anderson, to be with us for a Rubination. Thanks for coming back on, Ruben. Thanks for inviting me. Um, once again, you know, you wanted me to kind of keep these short and sweet, just mm-hmm. a couple points you said, and uh, you're going to have to have considerably less interesting guests if you <laughs> want me <laughs> to be short about it. Um, so I think for maybe different reasons, this uh, this conversation really really blew my mind as well. Um, it, uh, and it brought in so many details from my, my past work on sustainability, my research on behavior change and the way we are trying to live our life right now. Like it, it really, uh, yeah, it blew my mind. You can learn more about the way we're living our life right now on Ruben's blog, (laughs) smallanddeliciouslife.com. That's what he means by that. That's right. Okay. Um, there was a, a quote from a, uh, a friend and, and a mentor, an old boss of mine named Tom Ostba, uh, from the book Blindness by Jose Saramago. Um, and the quote is, the whole world is right there. Our problem is we are blind. Um, so I felt like this talk kind of, this, this conversation you had kind of encapsulates the whole world right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is we're blind. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... Um, so there's kind of, there's a, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk about. Um, but first of all, um, I got confused at the beginning. How many languages does she speak? Well, I don't know how many total, Uh but, uh, indigenous languages, she can speak Squamish Mm -hmm. and Sanchopin, but it sounds to me like she has other dialects that she's picked up as well. I see. And so, and her parents were Sartlip and, um... Squamish. And Squamish? Yeah. Okay, and so she, she was... Seems to be, or maybe a grandmother. Okay, so yeah. she was born, um, in North Vancouver, but came West to... Vancouver. In West Vancouver. Yeah. Okay. and then yeah. came to the island. Okay. Seems, yeah. And yeah. so now she currently lives on Sartlip Reserve. Right. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, she was, um, using the names 
in in the language, <laughs> which was very new to my ear. So mm-hmm. I got I got rapidly disoriented. Right. <laughs> uh, but it was that was uh, beautiful. Um, I guess we should talk about language first. Uh, I I. I you know, you know, I've talked about this a little bit in that, as you said, you talked about bringing kind of the, or she talked about, and you talked about the English mind or the, the English way of seeing things. And that's certainly uh, something I've questioned uh, in our conversations around this as well. I, I think they say something like without 200 fluent speakers, a language is just guaranteed to die or something. Um, and certainly we live in a world now in which very few people are able to live in Canada in a non-English and have a non-English speaking day, mm-hmm. you know, where you go to work and you go to the grocery store, you go to the gas station, you do whatever. And all that is, is able to not happen in English or mm-hmm. a great majority of your day is able to not happen in English. So it's hard for me to understand how this will play out. Um, like how we will... Uh, see the conservation of indigenous mm-hmm. languages yeah. and how it will ever have a hope. Yeah. Now, I, I think when we get to the sustainability segment of our conversation, <laughs> maybe that will be more clear. Uh, and I, I was also reminded that I, I think one of the things that's considered a great strength of English or the great, uh, yeah, the great, the, the, the knife hidden inside the glove of English is that it is just a mongrel language that uh, has been very convenient for trade and business over centuries. And so it becomes this this trade language. But what an English mind to say, you know what's so great about it? Uh-huh. Capitalism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and so that's, <laughs> right. that, that was the thing that, that was just the first thing that unfolded from, yeah. from what she was saying, yeah. is that, uh, is that, that very point. So, and she, um, she talked about how, you, they learn from the land. The land teaches them everything. So all of the, all of the lessons come from the land mm-hmm. um, and are sort of, I guess, you know, passed on by the elders, but they're passing on the obviousness of the land. Right. Um, and another thing that really stood out in that portion was uh, when she was talking about the, the settlers coming, um, it was that you don't know how to treat yourself well. And so how could you treat us well? Yeah. See, that hits me again right now. (laughs) So I, of course, very self-conscious about my um, fragile white lady tears, uh, could not stop the feeling in my bones Mm -hmm. of the truth of what she was saying. Mm -hmm. And it just kept pouring out my eyes and out my nose. It just, it, uh, yeah, that, that was very touching actually to Mm -hmm. have Tiffany name something and say, I can't teach you how to treat me well. Mm-hmm. That, that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. 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 It's, and it kind of reminds me now, I mean, people have said it less eloquently, but um, I think I saw on Twitter, you know, something about an American political discourse and somebody saying, I can't explain to you why you should care about people. <laughs> and if that's where we're at, this is bad news. But that's actually where Indigenous people in Canada have been for 400 years. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm -hmm. The whole world is right here. Yeah. Our problem is we're blind. 
well, when you say our problem is we are blind, I, is it that we're like kind of gradually regaining sight and that's why this hurts or something? No. Um, I don't want to talk about Jose Saramanga. I want to stay focused <laughs> on Tiffany. So. Yeah. Um, I, 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 you can hear me just, you know, searching for words, right? I, I'm trying to articulate the, the depth of what I feel like she's saying. Um, and the depth of the, I guess here's the thing, and the depth of the implication that unfolds from that for what we think of as normal life. And she talked about it. Uh, she talked about successful. Like she was using such searingly smart thinking in this conversation you had over lunch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so she understood in... in I'm sorry, can I stop you? Can you call her Tiffany? When you're okay, saying sorry, she, yeah. it just, it feels sure. weird to me. Yeah. I feel like she's right here and yeah. I know you've never met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah I only heard bring her, through, her in. I only heard her through my ears. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so, Tiffany, in her 20s, I will use both the... 30. Uh, no, I, I think she was saying in her 20s, she was, oh, she Tiffany was looking at... Oh, in her 20s, She yes. was looking at successful mm-hmm. uh, yes. or comparing the success of others. So, it might have even uh, been slightly before her 20s, if Mm -hmm. I recall it well. She was looking at, she was um, able to see that success was a relative measure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And so, as you just said, that's the thing about English. Like, English is very successful to achieve these goals, i.e., laying waste to entire continents. (laughs) Yes. Uh, uh, Yes. Committing genocide upon Mm -hmm. peoples. um, You know, driving species extinct Mm -hmm. uh, now at a rate of 200 species a day. Commercializing every single thing. Every single aspect. Pick up and extract. So English is is an incredibly, beautifully, marvelously flexible language that enables us to do that sort of thing. It's very successful at that. Mm -hmm. What English hasn't proven itself to be so so successful at doing is being the language people use in one spot for 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. Um, So in my English mind, I'm like, how, as you said, these, these villages are five minutes apart and they have linguistic differences. Yeah. Like, how do you run a world like that? Yeah. (laughs) You know, and the thing is, we can't run this world like that, Mm -hmm. but we can run a different world like that. And we can run a world that has a chance of surviving for millennia like that. That's right. We can we can thrive in a world that is within a sustainable in a sustainable relationship with a particular place mm-hmm. with a language like that. That's right. Mm-hmm. So I, I wrote a blog on smallanddeliciouslife.com uh, <laughs> called <laughs> Language Shapes Our Thoughts. Who cares? Right. Um, and I I was investigating in that, you know, it was it was looking at um, Chinese is a futureless language, and apparently Chinese people are better at saving money. And so this was a, this was a TED talk. And so you know the the then the TED idea worth spreading is presumably we should have a futureless language or something. And so people who speak English will save more money. You know, so it's just it's Weird. an yeah it's it's like an idea that just can't happen, right? We're mm-hmm. simply not going to make English futureless. Mm-hmm. And so then it's kind of a bit of a pointless conversation. Mm-hmm. But there's a very different situation here where there are a bunch of passionate people who are working really hard to reclaim the language of their place mm-hmm. without concern of whether 
they're going to save more money or get promoted up the yeah, corporate or hierarchy. Yeah, this is going to get them a job yeah. or anything like that. I know it's so much about culture and quality of life, but also I would say the quality of your culture. Mm-hmm. There's just so much there. Yeah. Um, I've told you before about the Lekwungen word. This was like, I think the second Lekwungen class I took and I was reading the dictionary and of course I started crying. So I needed to like try to lay low and have nobody look at me. But there was a word uh, that I, I can't say it in Lekwungen, but the definition of it was the parents in law where one of the couple has died and the word meant those who cry together. So the idea is that mm. you have a culture that is so close and so intact that my son or daughter-in-law would be my son and I would cry equally together with their parents as though this was my own child. Mm-hmm. And they have a word for that. Mm-hmm. That The quality of that culture, I, I envy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe this would be a good time to read this Wendell Berry quote, uh, which just as I was listening to this conversation, the, uh, between you and Tiffany, um, and taking a few notes and then I, you know, look on Facebook and you've posted this Wendell Berry quote. Mm-hmm. Of course, it seems like, <laughs> it seems like it's all coming together. Yeah. Take it away in your best mellifluous Wendell. Be young Wendell. Okay. Young Wendell. Uh, I'm not going to try to fake a Kentucky accent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We have lived our lives by the assumption that what was good for us would be good for the world. We have been wrong. We must change our lives so that it will be possible to live by the contrary assumption, that what is good for the world will be good for us. And that requires that we make the effort to know the world and to learn what is good for it. Hmm. So I, I... And only we have to make the effort to learn because it seems as though there are some people... Well, I shouldn't say only, but it seems as though some people are working really, really hard to not forget something they've already known for millennia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, language Tiffany so was saying virtually that. Yes. Like she said, almost the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that seemed awfully synchronous. It did, yeah. Um, so I, I, I felt like she was, to sum that up, I felt like she was kind of laying, she was giving examples of a really profound and sustainable worldview and way of living that uh, we should aspire to. And I have no idea how we as settlers will achieve that level of um, integration with the ecosphere. Uh, I certainly don't think we're going to do it in our lifespan. And of course, I think uh, humanity is in for a rough ride over the next several centuries. So that's going to be a challenge. but I feel like she really kind of summed up in a, in a beautiful way. And from a way that I totally wasn't expecting. I thought I was going to listen to you two talk about language. And she comes out with this. You know, I know. The whole world is right there. Yeah, totally. Um, towards the end, she talked about, again, this uh, blew me away. So she talked about being five years old and having suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just recently seen some news articles. So it's February now, in the month of October previous... Here in Canada, in the province of Saskatchewan, six Indigenous girls committed suicide in one month. And they were all under the age? They were all under 14. And one was as young as 10. So I I can't imagine a world in which a 10-year-old girl both has thoughts and has the capacity 
She has the physical capacity to take her own life. Yeah, and the con- the conviction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I mean like the tools. She has the tools to take her own life, plus the conviction to do it, and the, the destroyed world that, that makes that make sense for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is the world that we have built. This is the world that Canada built. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, there's, there's certainly no shortage of quotes from religious and political leaders of the Western world of past centuries that say, essentially, uh, it would be better for the heathen to die than to continue being a heathen. You know, so Canada thinks its policies have been <laughs> improved, I guess, have been separated from this time of colonial genocide. But the but facts the, on the ground. Yeah, the fact on the ground yeah. is that uh, current Canadian policy mm-hmm. is continuing this old pattern of, yes. of uh, it being better to kill the natives. Yeah. So yeah. that uh, yeah. that was try deeply upsetting. Yeah. yeah, try to argue. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay, then the last bit that I wanted to talk about, I kind of got misordered uh, in the way I thought we should talk about these things because we got so excited by the language. Uh, so maybe you want to just cut this off later because it's going to be controversial. Um, the, <laughs> the thing about the culture, the, another thing that it reminded me of is a, a blog post I read by a sociologist called Lisa Wade where she talks about uh, female genital cutting. Mm-hmm. Uh, which in the West is called female genital mutilation. Mm-hmm. She del- Can I just pause you? Uh-huh. Um, I'm very excited to hear all of the posts and comments I'm going to get uh, about my white cisgendered male husband uh, weighing in and having thoughts on female genital cutting. Um, please take it away. <laughs> uh, fortunately, they're not my thoughts at all. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're only uh, going to bring I, this random yeah. thing in. I'm, okay, I'm only relaying. No, I, I, it's, I'm hoping to connect it back to Tiffany in a way that uh, further uh, shows the ridiculousness of settler mind view. Okay. Uh, that's, that's, my, that's, that's my dream. That is sanctioned. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so Lisa Wade, an American sociologist, wrote this blog post uh, and has apparently written more extensively on uh, the basically the white liberal um, activity against female genital mutilation in quotes. Uh, Wade puts quotes around it because there's a lot of um, practices that are still ongoing that are not mutilating in any way. Um, And so, but there are rituals spread across uh, much of Africa and elsewhere that um, are simply cultural rituals right similar to say that they would perhaps i have no idea i haven't read this but perhaps compare to circumcision oh or much less like for example putting a small nick on the clitoris oh i see okay okay uh and so you know many of the procedures would be much less than circumcision which is still currently practiced widely here in North America yes, and by all sorts of religious groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are of course some that are, uh, that seem horrifying mm-hmm. and are deeply damaging. Yes. Um, and that seems to be their goal, but there's a wide range of these practices, not all, you know, many of which are just quite minor and are more cultural. Right. Um, and so the thing that like, so again, this blew my mind and she has links to, a, a an African woman who is quite active in, 
kind of promoting uh, the cultural importance of female genital cutting. Uh, this obviously blew my mind because I'd only ever heard the one story. But again, I'm left with this awareness that when the settlers come in with our big ideas of how the world should work, and again, we clear cut, we exterminate, <laughs> we, we, we run extinct, and the cultures with practices that seem bizarre or barbaric or incomprehensible to us are the ones that have been on the land for millennia, mm. surviving on the land for millennia. Um, so I, I think it's really, we really should shut up and sit back a lot more um, mm. about the practices that have survived in a place. Mm. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so uh, your conversation with Tiffany, there was a lot that uh, came up for me. <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah. Well, it was it was quite emotional for me. Mm. It really was. Mm -hmm. um, I could hear that sometimes in... Uh, because I kept sniffing. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure if you just were stuffed up. No, <laughs> or I was. If you were tearing I, up, but... I was staring at the ceiling and uh -huh. uh, sniffing and um, avoiding eye contact with Tiffany so that I wouldn't cry more. Uh -huh, yeah. I didn't want to take that over. Wasn't she just? Uh, yeah, I thought we were going to talk about language, yeah. and sh she was so brilliant. Yeah. Uh this is certainly not the first uh, First Nations person we've spent time with that have had a, a way of speaking quite plainly and was seemingly like little rancor, but mm -hmm. very truthfully. Yes. And so they don't try to hide it or sugarcoat it or anything. They're just like, and this is how it is. Yeah. And just the, the bare truth uh, destroys us because it's so sad and heartbreaking. Yeah. We've, we've been lucky. Yeah. I think that way with I, the generosity of people we've asked. Yeah, and I yeah. guess I guess that's what I was trying to say. It's like I, I'm I'm amazed by how kind and gentle they've been. Mm -hmm. You know, and that they they don't like Tiffany certainly doesn't sound angry. No. In that recording. No. You know. Uh, no. So patient. Yeah. So gentle. So good. Good humored. Yeah. Yeah. So Tiffany also has a blog, mm. and she wrote a very uh, thoughtful follow up. Um, to our conversation. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you can find the show notes with links to Tiffany's blog. Also, her astrology Facebook page. I didn't find out she was an astrologer till after the interview. <laughs> I was like, what? We have so much more to uh, talk about. A whole other conversation. A whole other conversation. Um, and also, uh, I will put her PayPal link in the show notes because if you appreciated Tiffany's insights today, you can support her directly by using that link. So you'll find it in the show notes by clicking on the podcast tab at carmenspaniola.com. So thanks for being on the show, Ruben. You're welcome. Just before we wrap up, I want to give a shout out to my listeners in Australia. Let's say hello to Australia today. Amazing. I know, we're shaking our heads. <laughs> what are you guys doing? Listening. That's so fantastic. Thank you for spending time with us. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this podcast is a complement to the Numinous School, my online intuition development course. If you'd like to be notified when registration reopens in June 2017, hop onto my website and sign up for my newsletter. While you're there, you may be interested to know that I've posted the dates for my 2017 Wilderness Quests. You and me, 12 Days in the Mountains, 
Reuben tending the fire at night. Mm -hmm. Top-down fire. Real woodsman's fire. A real woodsman's fire. <laughs> That's right. Get all the details at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.